On this All Saints Sunday, we're reading the text from the lectionary, and the New Testament lesson takes us to a mountain, sitting with Jesus as he teaches his disciples and a crowd. The verses I'm about to read are the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps the most important sermon ever preached. Hear now Matthew 5, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, from these old lessons and law, guide us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, we began this series on loving our enemies with a sentence from Jesus that comes later in the same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We tried last week to get concrete together about who our enemies are and why we should love them not for their sake, not for our sake, really, but because we love God and we love what God loves. And we asked the hard question of how, how can we love our enemies? Our Old Testament lesson last week was from Leviticus, ancient law that really doesn't mince words about how we love neighbor and enemy. It's very direct. It tells us how to act one person to another. Neighbor to neighbor, don't judge, don't label, slander, don't profit from anyone's pain, don't bear a grudge, don't allow anyone's life to be devalued, don't take revenge. Jesus knew that law very well, better than we do. And when he took a seat on a mountain to teach, he also knew the reality of the world around him. He knew just how far people were from fulfilling that command to love. So the Sermon on the Mount all the way through is a series of reversals. With each speech, Jesus replaces the values of the day with values the crowd would not have expected. 
Now, the Beatitudes might be familiar to us because we hear them pretty regularly in worship, and frankly, they sound very Jesus-y. These are just formulaic and pithy short statements. In Matthew's Gospel, there are nine of them, nine groups who are called out as blessed. Each of these groups is living in a way that the world didn't value. So Jesus reverses expectation and says, no, these people are blessed. He names specifically the poor, those who grieve, the meek, those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted, and especially those who are persecuted because they follow Jesus. Frankly, for Jesus to lift these groups up is just so Jesus. It's exactly what we would expect. But in the moment of this teaching, Jesus had to name these groups blessed because the world around them did not. Then and now, there was no blessing for being meek. Nice guys finish last. There was no good to be had from seeking peace. If power is won by force, peacemakers will always lose. There was nothing to be gained by showing mercy. In a competitive and violent world, the merciful are seen as pitiful and weak. In fact, they are persecuted. Last week, we defined enemy as someone who holds enmity, someone who does not want the well-being of another and might even act against the well-being of another. And here Jesus says outright that the poor, meek, grieving, merciful, hungry, peacemaking, and pure in heart have enemies. People revile them. They say terrible things about them. They do the very things Leviticus told us not to do. They judge, take advantage, slander the people Jesus now tells us are blessed. So what does blessed mean? It's complicated word here. It's the reason these are called the Beatitudes from the Latin for blessing, beatus. But it's more nuanced than that. You all know I love to dig into the words and know what choices were made in the translating. So here we go. We get the English word blessed nine times. Some translations, maybe one you grew up with, use the word happy there. Have you heard that? Happy are those who are pure in heart. But our English words blessed and happy don't get all the way to the heart of the matter. Happy is too much like a passing feeling. And blessed is all tangled up with reward and prosperity. These words make it sound like this is some kind of done deal. Because Jesus has said they're blessed, now suddenly things are better for these suffering folks but the grieving and persecuted don't feel happy. When Jesus starts to talk about blessing, he isn't promising a reversal of fortune, saying that if you're poor or meek now, so sorry, but don't worry, you'll become rich and powerful later. Blessing here is something more in process, something leading to a value better than a reversal of fortune, Jesus evokes a Hebrew notion of blessing we find in the Psalms that's translated into English, you're on the right road. You're on the right road if you seek peace. 
You're on the right road if you're meek in the face of abject power. It might not feel happy or blessed at all, but you're on the right road if you carry on even when enemies call you weak and take advantage. The reward won't be that the tables are turned and the meek suddenly become like the powerful ones who persecute them now. It will be that the poor and meek and grieving and peacemaking will get to live in a different world. The Beatitudes have captivated us for 2,000 years because in their poetry, we see a picture of a different kind of world. Three times Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, to a different reality where there will be comfort, peace, and mercy, where those who are belittled will be called children of God and welcomed in. If Leviticus is a to-do or a not-to-do list, the Beatitudes tell us that in the face of enmity, Jesus means to change the world. We've zoomed out here from how to interact just one-on-one with a neighbor to a new value system, one that lifts up the ways the world says will get you beaten up on the playground or mocked in a tweet or voted out of office. You're on the right road if you do not forsake meekness and pureness of heart and peacemaking for the temptation to match force with force or to play dirty because everybody else does, or to wage war because you can. As hard as this is, says Jesus, you are blessed now and the world will change. The powers and violence and enmity will be reversed because they are not the currency of the kingdom of heaven. This is the already and the not yet we find all through the gospel Jesus says that these nine beleaguered groups are on the right road, but he knows that the world is not yet right. I think these sayings, the Beatitudes, are a kindness. They're Jesus saying, I see you. I encourage those who are suffering to stay on the right road, even when it doesn't feel good. And these sayings are a call for us to work to change the world around us. There's a turn here from the individual who might feel meek or persecuted toward the whole environment. You are the salt of the earth, said Jesus. You're the light of the world. You can season your environment with the flavors of goodness. You can counter the darkness of the moment with light. And in so doing, every time you do, you change the environment itself. Like the folks who sat on the hill and listened so long ago, we live in a world where all of us sometimes feel persecuted and reviled, where we often don't dare to be meek or kind or gentle or to seek peace because we're afraid we'll be pummeled. That kind of environment is the enemy of the kingdom of God. And if we're going to be able to love, we have to work for a different environment. My daughter Caroline and I enjoy the great British baking show. Anyone else? It's one of our go-tos when we just want to feel like things are going to be okay. The stakes are low. 
The worst thing that happens is a failed cake or a contestant having to leave each week. The challenges are delightful and unrealistic, I might add. We tried one and it took us a whole day. (laughs) And the camaraderie is high. Even these people who are competing against each other become a supportive little family there under the tent. It's a nice reminder that there are lots of good humans and that food brings us joy. If you don't watch, I recommend it. There are two judges on the show. It is a competition, Prue Leaf and Paul Hollywood, and they are both trained chefs. Prue is known for being gentle with the contestants. Paul is the harsh critic. And Paul's specialty as a chef is bread. So each season, there's a week when the competition revolves around baking bread. The contestants have to bake some of their own designs, and they always have to make one recipe that isn't their own. Many have cried, melted down, and sworn off bread forever after Paul Hollywood tasted their bread. I heard this famous chef answer a question about why it is so hard for the contestants to bake perfect bread. He said, Bread is one of the hardest things to bake consistently because it is so affected by its environment. Water, air temperature, your hand temperature, everything can change the dough. It needs salt, but also yeast, and the two can't be mixed together because the salt will kill the yeast. Now, Paul Hollywood was being literal there, not theological. He was just talking about bread. But I heard in that cooking lesson, a beautiful metaphor for the challenge we face when we set out to love our enemies. We are so affected by our environment. Even when we want to love, even when we want to do something life-giving, the environment we're in shapes us and our environment sets us up to compete and even to hate. Sometimes, Our enemies are personal. Sometimes there is someone who wishes us harm or has labeled us enemy or we them. But based on the emails you sent me this week after last week's sermon, I think often our enemies are harder to pin down. They're groups or their identities, and we don't even know who exactly is in them. They're the opposite of our affiliations. They hold values we don't understand. But when it comes to loving them, we're stumped because they are just a they. We're challenged to love enemies in part because we're living in an environment that expects us to be enemies. Like bakers trying to manage all kinds of factors that can ruin the bread, we feel stuck in an environment too entrenched to change. The first century wasn't a place with information spread the way we know it now. But when Jesus spoke the Beatitudes, he saw the forces of the world around him, and he cast a vision of a different environment, a world where peace and mercy and meekness are the most valuable. And he tells those who are trying to follow his way that while they aren't there yet, they are on the right road. Today, we join this already and not yet as we come to the Lord's table.
a place where bread made with salt will feed us. It will remind us that in the act of sharing communion, we are sharing in our Lord's vision of a different environment, one that doesn't trade or build up enmity, but blesses all who dare to love in spite of it. We'll be nourished to keep going on the right road, person by person, and trying wherever we find enmity to change the environment around us with the choices we make. And as we gather at the table this day, we will read the names of all those in the congregation who died since All Saints Day last year. We will sound a bell and light a candle with the light of Christ to honor and give thanks for those loved ones who now dwell in the kingdom of heaven. We don't lift them up because they were perfect, but we claim the truth that they have joined the communion of the saints, and we give thanks for the ways that they were salt and light for their families, many of whom are here this morning, for our community, for this church, and for the world. We give thanks for what we learned from them, their teaching and their mistakes from the roads they walked and the love we shared. And while some of these were long lives that left nothing unfinished and others leave us with questions, we embrace this day as a thin place where our humility before God shows. We hope together in a world where enmity will be no more and believe that someday we will be welcomed home into the open arms of our Lord just as our loved ones have been. And in the meantime, remembering them, we will stay on the right road, striving to be salt and light and love. Amen.